Welcome to GP's Pangeo Perspectives, your guide to global growth, where we explore opportunities and ideas that come with global team building, business expansion, and compliance for companies everywhere. Hello, everyone. Pangeo is an idea inspired by the 300 million year old supercontinent, Pangea, when the Earth's landmasses were united as one. Today, the world is reuniting once again, as businesses everywhere seek opportunities beyond borders and boundaries. So let's explore the future of business with voices from around the world. As we look for success, we all can share. Welcome to GP's Pangeo Perspectives, your guide to global growth. On today's show, we're going to talk about the power of diverse teams and how representation, inclusion, and diversity of thought matters, not just as a business goal, but as a real strategic advantage once you get there, and how it impacts your entire business, from financial and employee performance, recruiting efforts, and more. So let's find out. For this conversation, I'm thrilled to be joined by Catherine Zaliski, co-founder and board chair of Power to Fly a platform that helps accelerate economic equity by upskilling and connecting underrepresented talent to roles in highly visible sectors. Really exciting stuff. And Sienna J. Brown, Senior Director of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging at power to fly I'm your host, Thomas Merchant, Director of International Brand Management at GP. Now let's get started. Catherine, Sienna, it's great to have you on the show today. You guys ready to dive in? Yes, and thank you. Looking forward to it. So, Diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging. The very thought of these has changed and evolved significantly over time as both ideas and as goals. Catherine, can you tell us what DEIB gaps you felt you needed to tackle first when you founded Power to Fly? So, gosh, it was about nine years ago that I co-founded Power to Fly with Melena Berry. And the focus was very much on women in tech and the fact that there was just such a gap there between how many women were actually working in the tech space versus how many women out there could work in tech. And we thought at the time that actually remote work would enable the numbers to go up across women in tech. The interesting thing about the origins of Power to Fly is we're following a very similar trajectory that a lot of people follow on their DEIB journeys. We were looking at our own problems first as women but is very privileged woman and woman who could work from home, woman who had access to high paying roles with a lot of flexibility. And we weren't thinking at all about really what it means to be intersectional. And so I think Power to Fly's journey has very much followed what at least the nation here in the U.S. has done around diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging. So the focus originally was just on diversity. Now we talk about equity, inclusion and belonging. And we talk about the fact that diversity isn't about one single identity not being represented. It's about intersectionality and the fact that people have multiple identities. And those multiple identities really affect everything from how they're treated in the workplace to how they feel in the workplace to how companies need to approach their recruiting, retention, and belonging practices. And you know, intersectionality is a term that was coined by a woman named Kimberly Crenshaw, who's a professor at Columbia Law School. I encourage everybody to read her work. I think that evolution has happened at Power to Fly and it's happening across companies where we understand just how much more complex DEIB is. 
Wow, super interesting. Sienna, how about for you? How have things changed from when the company was founded to now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm really honored to have joined the journey of Power to Fly when we were going through changing our mission to expand, to focus on different parts of individuals' identities, talking about what Catherine had mentioned regarding intersectionality. I think the biggest thing I've really seen that we've done at Power to Fly and Celebrate is also looking at what does DEIB look like on a global lens? So we've always been a global first company and the majority of the companies that we work with in some capacity have to think about global scale. And so we've really been able to dive in and dig into concepts around what does identity look like on a global lens? What does EEO look like on a global lens? What are some of the nuances that folks are looking for depending on the country and the culture that they're from? And then also thinking through how can we bridge the gap to tie that together while still being able to help companies reach their business goals while also supporting the entire employee experience for diverse Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've always believed you have to get empathically attuned to the culture you're in front of, sort of meet the people that you're in front of in their model of the world and try to pick up on the cultural cues. If not, you're not going to get the richness out of the relationship that you could. The question too is sort of what is defined as enough? And I don't think people sit down and really look at what does the landscape look like around them first? And to Sienna's point around really approaching DEIB from a global lens and your point, Thomas, about being empathic within the cultures that you're in. So we work with massive multinationals as you do at GP. And for example, what Meta needs in San Francisco is very different than what Meta needs in India. And so what Sienna's team and what the team at Power to Fly does that's so great is they actually look at everything from the demographics, the cultural needs of a certain area, and they make that analysis first. And then the overarching question around like, what is enough? I think there needs to be a shift now for people to understand that enough is you taking personal responsibility within a company's DEIB journey. And so often... We hear about compliance courses or I need to check a box. And where we really want to get at Power to Fly is this idea that everybody is responsible for belonging, inclusion, psychological safety. You should not be promoted at your company if you don't understand these concepts. It's always changing and how things were a couple of decades ago to now when you have such rich teams, somebody's from Nigeria, living in France, who grew up in the U.S., who's married somebody from Asia. You can't just put people into one box and say, okay, they fit this stereotype. I would just add in really quickly, I'm loving this conversation. I also think that it's important for us to think about non-visible diversity as well, which I think is something that's so important. What about folks who might be disabled and might have non-visible disabilities what about folks who might identify as a part of the LGBTQIA plus communities? And really thinking through number one, similar to what Catherine was saying before, is there enough psychological safety within the company? And that starts again from the company's brand presence externally. I'll talk about this a little bit more later and saying, do I feel safe enough to talk about all parts of my identities in the place that I work without that having a negative impact? And so something we've really seen with the clients that we're working with is being able to say, how are we looking at identity on a much more, saying global scale, global scale, and then also global within identities, and then also thinking about what might these different groups need. And so really trying to have companies focus on an employee-centered first type strategy versus just having leadership build the strategy without actually hearing what is it that folks need and how are folks identifying within a company as well. And the other thing I would just add is that I feel like TEIB, especially over the past five to 10 years, has become more of, not necessarily a need, but more of a mandate almost. And if that's not 
externally, that's being internally because employees are saying that they are interested in joining companies that have this as one of their core focuses. My background is in psychology and I always think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? We want our employees to be able to reach their full potential because that would be able to help us grow and scale as businesses. But thinking through that, they need to be able to have their basic needs met. So when we think about safety, that's saying, okay, does this person feel safe in their environment? Do they feel supported? And so as folks walk up or move through this hierarchy of needs, again, we think about how are companies supporting those efforts so that, again, people will be able to reach their best potential and the business will be able to scale at the same time. Makes a huge amount of sense. I mean, if they feel safe and they can own all the different attributes of who they really are without having to fear being judged, makes a huge difference. Everything Sienna is saying is so spot on. And as a leader, my job is to make sure that people get paid and that structurally the company exists into the future. My job is also to make sure that people feel psychologically safe. But I would implore a lot of companies and employees to start thinking about how do we embed that into each employee to make everybody else psychologically safe? Because when you're running a mid-size to large company, you get a lot of how do you fix this problem on an individual level between two employees. And it's very hard to change people and people's behaviors on that level. How do you build programs that ultimately put the responsibility throughout the company around psychological safety if you don't have a good base throughout your employees? It should be on the employees more, but the leadership has to first set up that structure is my point. Put it in the company culture. Yeah, for sure. Something that's really interesting is HBR had a report that said that 28% of the companies actually hold C-suite level executives accountable for progress against the DEIB strategy. And so what's interesting about that is because while that should not be their main role or responsibility, we're often seeing that when individuals and our teams are trying to move that forward, who is actually accountable? So oftentimes you find that that's either an HR people ops leader or a DEIB leader. And so what we've really found work at companies that we partner with is not just the C-suite, but going back to what Catherine was saying, with all of leaders and all of employees, having some type of accountability systems. So not just having goals or onus be in certain silos, but instead being able to say, how do we have all of our managers? How do we have all of our individuals who are up for promotion and all of our leaders across the board be able to hold that accountability and then report up to the C-suite to make some of those higher level decisions. And the other thing that I would just say is very few companies measure TEIB within their organizations. So oftentimes DEIB is this fun term that lives over in this cloud versus being able to say, how is this actually integrated and aligned with our company goals, knowing that it's going to be able to have an impact. And so setting clear goals, so whether that's saying, okay, we want to increase diverse talent by 35% or improve well-being by 15%, whatever that might be, actually creating matrices to be able to have different individuals hold accountability, and then also have employees also contribute to how can we move this forward so that the onus isn't just on one team or a set of individuals, but again, it's something that's integrated into how the company works. Next question for you guys. At GP, we build our business on the idea that providing more opportunities for more people everywhere organically creates stronger growth through better solutions. So Sienna, do you think companies are starting to see the real competitive advantages that strong representation and inclusion can create? Yeah, this is a great question, Thomas. I mean, the first thing that I would say is when we're thinking about the job market and attracting and retaining top talent, diverse representation and inclusion is essential. 
There was a recent study by Deloitte that actually showed that 53% of the millennials, again, a large part, not the entire job market, but 53% of them said that if they found the same job, they would leave their organization for a more inclusive one. And they actually saw that 39% of talent turned down a job offer because they perceived the organization to lack an inclusive environment. And so it's interesting because we're starting to see this societal shift of it not just being a nice to have, but individuals really valuing where they work as we spend the majority of our time working to being able to say, I would rather either take a pay cut, I would rather enter at a different type of role that I would in a different company if I'm actually at a company that is aligned with my values, my mission, and how I can show up in the workplace. And so it's interesting because, again, when we think about top talent and diverse talent, one and the same, right? When we're thinking about top talent, this isn't just if someone checks off a certain type of box, this matters to them, but instead it's being able to say anyone who's experiencing your company from what you post on social media to your company page to even the interviewing process, the way that individuals show up and the questions that are being asked, how they're being asked, et cetera, really have an impact in if talent are, number one, willing to stay at your company and then also willing to join as well. Do you find any common elements across regions that at least you see are, are happening across the board? Some common elements that I've seen, again, are just the desire for a sense of psychological safety and belonging, and then also the sentiment of contribution. So everyone wants to be able to feel as if they're contributing, that their contributions are leading up to a bigger goal. So whether that's taking a moment to see if you're scheduling calls at time zones that might be either not too early or not too late for all individuals, no matter where they're located, or if you're offering different types of professional development opportunities or ways for teams to meet up, just really being conscious of how can you make sure that as you're trying to work towards inclusion, you're not actually excluding other individuals. And then again, as a company, gaining a baseline and really saying, what do our employees want and hearing from them? I just love that because, you know, Inviting them to be a part of the team is one thing, but really engaging, connecting, making that effort is really important. Catherine, what contrasts have you seen regarding implementing DEIB policies in the startup young company ecosystem compared to large multinational corporations? And how might they approach a successful DEIB practice the same or differently? I'll start this out, but I think Sienna actually has some more real experiences uh, working with clients because she works across the spectrum. What's interesting on the startup side is when you're in a startup, you're doing everything, right? We talk about startup employees needing to be athletes. They can pivot and jump into different roles. And so you definitely see more of that willingness to take it on, the personal responsibility around DEIB as the company grows versus larger corporations where there's more of a sentiment of, I'll do what I'm told in order to make sure that I'm compliant and moving on to the next level and in a way, I wish everybody would have their own startup mentality when it came to DEIB. Like, this is crucial for my own career trajectory. And we're building programming, too, now where CN actually is launching a series of fantastic courses to teach people on an individual level. It's going to be called Power Up on all the topics we're talking about today. She gives roadmaps. She gives templates that you can download. It's all there. And what's great about it is it essentially allows people to build their own programming around DEIB. And that's something that a startup employee takes on. A very quick example, but we often, in some of our trainings that we've done on the enterprise level and SMB, it's like, okay, how many individuals are left-handed? You might have 2%, 3%, 5%. 
raise their hand. And then we ask, how many individuals think about what does it mean to be left-handed on a day-to-day basis? How often does that pop up in your mind? You might have 4%, and almost all of the people who are in that 4%, the reason is because they have either someone close to them, a child, a loved one, a best friend, whatever that might be, who's left-handed. So they understand what more of those nuances are, like when you write on a paper, if you play the guitar, swiping your Metro card, if you live in New York City, whatever that might be. And so we get into a little bit of the discussion of if we don't think about what that's like, and that's something that's quite simple, imagine how many other identities and parts of the way that we live, we often never consider. So starting with the sentiment of awareness, self-awareness, and then awareness of others, but then actually making sure that you're bringing people along the journey for action and accountability as well, and really advocating for the importance of investment when you're putting together either different strategic goals, initiatives, or building out what does that look like within their companies as well. Yeah, because I mean, that's just such a small, I mean, you're left-handed, but you take it on to the linguistic, the cultural, the expectations, conditioning, all those other things that play a part of DIB, and you get a sense of the impact. Okay, very interesting stuff. So let's get a little more personal. You've touched on this a little bit, Sienna, but distinction plays an important role in having programs that resonate with workers, right? You just talked a little bit about some of the training you do. What are other key elements to successfully managing inclusion from an employee's point of view? So bringing in another study, Libra had a study recently that showed that 97% of companies said that they improved DEIB at their organizations, yet only 24% of employees perceived that progress. Which, like, just hearing those numbers, that's a very wide gap that needs to be bridged, right? And I think that this is something that we've especially seen in the recent years of either signing some type of certificate or publishing something on a website or whatever that might be of companies thinking that they're taking actions that matter, yet employees are saying either we're not seeing it or we don't feel aligned with the action that's happening, right? And so I think the biggest thing that you can do is ask your employees, And whether that's through pulse surveys or whether that's through if you're doing a wider employee engagement survey, whatever that might be, actually asking them what are their sentiments, what would they like to see, and then actually extrapolating the data and creating themes, right? Because again, you can't tackle everything that everyone wants, but saying what are the things that we want to be focusing on and how is this actually going to help us again with our wider business goals? And The consistent and transparent communication is something that employees really value. And it's okay if you mess up. It's okay if you say, okay, well, I'll give a quick example. We were working with one of our companies that's been a partner for a couple of years, and they had had a goal to have their employee base be representative of the U.S. population. And when they had started, they were far away from that goal. That was their five-year goal. Something that we did when working with them, I'm excited to say that they reached that goal in two years' time. So they were able to be diverse of the U.S. population, but then also had an increased sense of belonging. The most important things that that company did was, number one, starting off by actually asking their employees their sentiments, ways to improve, and what were some of the things that they thought were most important, and then actually bringing them along the journey as well. So always having that connection between leaders and C-suite and then other individuals, no matter what their levels were, that were actually taking action towards helping that wider goal. And so it was really interesting to just be able to see the transformation again, not just in the representation in the company, but then also how they brand themselves, how they've been able to expand sales and their customer bases because they have more diverse folks at the table. And when we talk about the business case for it, I think it's something that, again, they don't live separate, but instead it's something that should be integrated. And the last thing that I'll just share is really thinking about organizational culture 
and how that lives within workplace relationships, right? And so going back to what Catherine was saying before is that everyone plays a role in what this looks like. And so really making sure that there's some type of integration and whether that's not just training because training is okay, but we don't want to check off a box, but like consistent engagement and conversations around what are the important things that we need, not just to be better at DEIB, but to better support our colleagues and to become better leaders overall. Tell me a little bit about the richness that comes from all this. When DEIB is properly put in place and people feel safe to, to talk about who they are, their identity, what can we see? I mean, what are some of the advantages that come through? I mean, I can, I can just think of the richness of ideas, of perspectives, of innovation. Can you elaborate a little bit more? There's a lot of studies that point to the fact that non-homogeneous cultures perform better. So diverse cultures. I want to also quote a study that shows that companies with strong, diverse leadership at the top outperform other companies in the stock market. So that's really important. And everything from the decisions made down to every detail are just much more thought through and ultimately valuable because the team is more diverse. I mean, examples being in the construction industry, I was at a meeting yesterday about some real estate developments and the fact that this real estate group has a set of diverse international women as project managers on their sites means that they're building properties that are going to be more popular because they're thought through around what everybody needs. So that opens up the amount of people that want to rent the places. And this is an incredibly successful property management company. So it shows in the numbers, right? Wow. Okay. Back to the HR managers a bit. Catherine or Sienna, the role of an HR manager, in your opinion, how can they bring people together and build trust across their company? I would say to HR managers, there's a difference between HR and DEIB. And what's cool now is that it would advance so much technologically in terms of how we can tackle DEIB within organizations. I mean, these are still people-first problems. They have to be solved by people, but they can also be solved by platforms and technology, like the stuff that we're building, where humans and, and there's heart within the bots, right? There's that layer of humanity. Really seems like it's heightening that awareness of the benefits of DEIB and, and not having it being cut when budgets are cut for it to be the first thing that's sort of, you know, taken off the table. So they really see the benefits of the richness of what it's going to bring to their company. I want to piggyback off of something that Catherine had said, People first. And if I had to give advice as well, I think something that we've also seen is a shift from HR managers or HR leaders to having titles like people operations or whatever that might be. And I think something that can bring, going back to like the question of bringing people together and building trust across the company is centering a people first mentality. And again, people can also be aligned with the processes, with the platforms that are used, with the budgets that are needed, but thinking through people and then also being able to think about when I view an HR or a people ops leader role, I also think it's like being a sponge or being an octopus of being able to have to taking all of the different needs of the business and being able to bring them together, thinking about the people who are employed at the company. So when I think about like building trust, number one, feedback loops, that doesn't mean that the feedback will always have action. But feedback loops and being able to have that opportunity for employees to share their thoughts, share their ideas, et cetera. Some of the best ideas that we've actually seen integrated from some companies have been through those feedback loops or surveys from someone who might have been at the company for three months, who's an individual contributor who says, hey, have we thought about this, which has been able to have that ripple effect. The other thing that I would say is, again, going back to what Kaffir is saying, especially because 
budgets are getting cut. Oftentimes, companies are stepping back from investing specifically in DEIB efforts, is really thinking through as an HR people ops leader, what is the role that you want to play and what is realistic based on where you all are at right now? So like, what is the next easy step to be able to bridge the gap? And then also tying that to the roles and also being an advocate and almost the bridge for the executives and leaders with the rest of the company as well. Finally, looking to the future, how do you think the concept and implementation of DEIB is poised to further evolve in the global context? I'll kick us off the normalization. I think normalization and demystification are the two things that I would focus on. Because on the side of demystification, again, it's something that it means something different to everyone. (laughs) The definitions are there, but in every company and for every individual, it looks a little bit different. So I think demystifying a little bit, both within companies and then even within departments and different organizational groups, thinking through what does this actually mean for us? And then also, what does this mean for us on a global scale? And then also, the other thing that I would love to see is more cross-cultural understanding and communication. Because I think, again, we all have unconscious bias, we all have stereotypes of, okay, well, this might be how people work, so I'm going to adapt around that, whatever that might be. But really taking the time to understand, to ask questions, to listen actively, and then to also hold a sentiment of self-awareness of what can I be doing to be able to have different cross-cultural communication. But again, to make myself a better leader, to be able to have myself scale professionally, what we were talking about before, to be able to gain access to more economic equity. Yeah, I mean, what's unfamiliar to you is not something that needs to be scary or something that you fear. Quite the opposite. You should go towards it. And I've always said to people, because I've spent the last 35 years living outside of my country of origin, when in doubt, just ask. Be curious and connect. And you'll just find out that there's so much more you have in common with people from different cultures and backgrounds than you think. So... Guys, wonderful conversation. Huge thanks to both of you for joining us on the show today to talk about how representation, inclusion, and diversity of thought matters as a real strategic advantage. And thank you to our listeners. We hope you gained some valuable insights from this conversation. And if you enjoyed the show, please follow us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. I'm Thomas Merchant, and this has been Pengeo Perspectives, presented by GP. 